how much more do we know now about clinical trials compared to, say, before March 2020? And that's relevant for everyone too, for people working closely within clinical trials. But even the general public, your average punter on the street probably knows a lot more now about clinical trials than they ever did a few years ago. The pandemic and the COVID vaccine trials really brought clinical trials front of mind for everyone. But what does that mean now? Clinical trials are critical for bringing new innovations to light and they help patients with really challenging health issues that don't fit within the box of healthcare today as we know it. Recruiting for trials can be a nightmare, either if you're running a trial or you're a patient looking for one. And the design of a trial can be a really messy process as well. What role might technology play in addressing all of this? Well, with me today is Michelle Gallagher from Opal. And in this episode, we're talking about how clinical trials have changed over time and how artificial intelligence can be used within clinical trials, specifically in participant recruitment and protocol design. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. With me today is Michelle Gallagher, CEO of Opal, who are applying artificial intelligence and predictive analysis to improve clinical trials. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for asking and thanks for having me on. Good to have you on the show. It's great to chat while we press record, actually. I think we spent spent far too long uh, chatting before this actual recording and then we thought, hey, we should probably actually record a podcast. So it's great to connect with you and and seeing you around, around the traps, as they say, at some events recently too. So it's good to be able to sit down and spend a bit of time and work out what you're doing. But firstly, tell us about you and your background. Sure, thanks. So I started off as an allied healthcare clinician. So I worked in ophthalmology. So I'm an orthoptist by trade, but didn't last very long because I think I was quite rubbish at it. But got involved in clinical trial systems pretty early on. So I had a really great ophthalmologist that I worked for and she said, actually, I think you'd be better in this space. So I didn't realise that that was actually going to be my future. So then fast forward... A whole lot of years I've worked in biotech, in pharma marketing, in regenerative medicine, uh, government and advisory. And then three years ago, Opal was formed and that's where we are now. So Opal is a small cap listed company on the stock exchange, our ticker's OPL, and we've got about 13 staff based in Melbourne and Sydney. Before we get into the, the different technologies that you use, that whole journey of being small and listed must be a bit unique in itself too and, and bring challenges and opportunities. Yeah, I call it whitewater rafting. Ah. <laughs> that's what it feels like. So you got to hang on. You've got to wear a life jacket. So you minimize risk, but it moves really fast. It's really exciting. Yeah, you need a team to be able to get to the end point. It's a really exciting space. It's really interesting to be able to work in the listed space. It certainly has its challenges around compliance, and that's fair enough. It's a great way to grow a business and to do it with the support of lots of some of them very sophisticated investors, others are mums and dad investors. And that's that's really cool. Yeah, that is cool. I like it. I like it. Talk to me about the different technologies within Opal. As I understand, there's Open and Trial Key, right? Tell us about Open firstly. Yeah. So what we're trying to do at Opal is we're applying artificial intelligence to improving clinical trials. There's a lot of challenges in clinical trials and the clinical trial system is very ripe and ready for enrichment of these new emerging technologies. So we have two approaches and the two big problems we're trying to solve is really port recruitment. So this is one of the key reasons why clinical trials fail. And the other one is poor trial design. And that's the other reason why a lot of clinical trials fail. So we have 
sort of two bullets in the chamber as a business. And both Open, which is a clinical trial recruitment platform, and TrialKey, which is a protocol design and prediction platform, they actually work together. So a lot of the development we do for TrialKey has a direct and very appropriate impact on Open and flip it the other way around. So two different streams and solving two of the biggest problems in the clinical trials industry. Super interesting and different stakeholders and different challenges. And we'll unpack some of that. Talk to me about those really key problems a little bit more around, say, recruitment. Firstly, why is that such a big problem? Yeah, if we take a step back and look at the clinical trials sector. So when you think about COVID, it's been a really interesting time for clinical trials because suddenly now everybody's talking about clinical trials. And the general population, their health literacy around clinical trials has really shifted. So not only are they talking about vaccine clinical trials, they're now talking about clinical trials for the therapeutic areas they're interested in, migraine, arthritis, diabetes, you know, whatever it is. So if we talk about recruitment first, it's kind of a little bit depressing when we talk about this. So I'm, it's all right, I'm going to bring you up at the end of the conversation. But when you think about it, only about 10% of clinical trials actually reach their primary end point. They actually succeed in that space. And one of the big challenges is recruitment. Over 80% of clinical trials fail to recruit on time and on budget. And there's about a 20% dropout rate of people once they get into a clinical trial and they enroll and then they drop out. It's getting harder and harder to find those participants because the complexity of clinical trials is changing with adaptive clinical trials and decentralized models, but also the downward pressure on budgets. So in 10 years, the cost of a clinical trial has doubled. And one of the biggest cost centers in running a clinical trial is recruitment. So it represents about 34% of the budget. So what we're trying to do with Open is to make it faster, more reliable, global and affordable. And I think that's exactly what we're achieving. But our key user group, people, participants, so I'm actually loath to call them patients because they're not always patients, they're participants. And there's been heaps of studies done looking at participant or patient populations saying, what do you think about clinical trials? And a lot of those studies will reveal that probably between 75 and 80% of people with an interest in that therapeutic say, yeah, I'd be interested in participating in a clinical trial. But the facts are it's only about 2 to 5% of patients or people actually participate. So there's a real gap here. And a lot of that is around the opportunity. Are they given the opportunity to participate? Often their clinicians don't know about the opportunities to participate or it's not inclusive enough. In other words, it's not culturally sensitive or it's not in maybe their first language. So there's real barriers around perception. But the fact is most people say, yes, I'd be prepared to consider a clinical trial or a study opportunity, but I don't know how. I was going to say, like, I don't think we're short of people who want to participate in clinical trials. And whenever I speak to people on a day today, it's a very broad statement, but there are many that say, oh, like it would have been great if a clinical trial existed for for this person, perhaps that has passed or has just been dealing, struggling or whatever it might be, or even for their own circumstances. And they say, well, the, the trials just don't exist. And you kind of just, the stars need to align and everything needs to be absolutely bang on because there's a really specific requirement for a trial. I mean, you raised a good point about clinician awareness, because if a GP or, or a treating clinician isn't aware of a trial, then it's probably not even a start for the patient. And then often it relies on the patient doing Googling or, or hopefully the algorithm shines brightly on them through social media and, and makes them aware. I'm not sure. Yeah, like it's a funny challenge. Yeah, well, you've actually nailed it. Yeah, that's actually our approach. So one of the key competitive advantages we have at Open is within my team, 
I have a whole group of precision digital marketers that have only ever worked in health and have a background in life sciences. So they're either clinicians themselves or researchers. But on top of that, they're precision digital marketers. And so this is where the algorithm works. So people now Google. And so when Google is working and our search engine optimization is working, it means that they get presented with information that is actually relevant to them. But also part of our targeting that we do for some customers is targeting healthcare providers through social media. So if you think about it now, about 70% of the world's population use social media. We spend on average two hours a day in this space. Googling and searching social media for health information is one of the top 10 things. You've got to leverage that. So one way of recruiting is going to electronic health records and you see lots of companies that are sort of our collaborators, competitors. They go to electronic health records and they use AI to search and connect. We go the other way. We're specialists in social media search and connect. And one of our key technologies that nobody else has in this space because we built it ourselves is a social listening technology where we listen across multiple platforms. We identify patient populations. We listen to their language. This is only in public spaces. And then we build strategies around targeting those populations and helping them to see the opportunities directly in front of them. It's a funny combination of things, isn't it? When you talk about social media and healthcare, and I guess all the complexities come with that, but then the listening side of things, it's a difficult one to balance, I guess, because on one hand, you want to make sure you're you're uncovering these people that wouldn't have otherwise been discovered. On the same token, you're dealing with sensitive private information and issues that need to remain confidential. So finding that balance is, is a really tricky one. Yeah, it's important to understand that with listening technologies around social media, we only work in public spaces particularly when patients and healthcare providers put information out on social media publicly, we have an obligation to listen to them. In some ways, people say to me, is that ethical to take that information? We de-identify it, we aggregate it, we use artificial intelligence to group it and create patterns with it. It's de-identified. But yes, it is ethical. In some ways, you can say, is it ethical to ignore that when participants, when patients are sharing information to social media about their healthcare condition, should we ignore that? And I think not. So that's one of the competitive differences for us. And what it means is for all of the studies that we've recruited over the past 18 months, 100% have hit their target. So we've got 100% success rate around recruitment. And most of our studies are recruiting ahead of plan. We actually have a little bit of a problem at the moment with a few customers. We're sending too many qualified leads through to the study team. So they come through a digital triage, and in that we make sure that they they meet the eligibility criteria for the individual study, and then we pass them through to the site team to do that enrolment and the consent process. If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me, or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients or you're building health technology, or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, 
you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course we love to showcase our members, so when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members. It's literally the heart of everything we do. So consider joining as a THT Plus member. You can join anytime online. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT Plus. Just trying to understand the technology a little bit more too for a second, specifically with open. So, you know, you've got on one hand the person facing stuff where it might present a trial or information to them through their social media platform, which for some people just might sound like, paid advertising on socials. It's obviously much more than that. But then on the other side, you've got then this portal, as you say, in the triage functionality. So it's an app, like a web app? Yeah, it is. It's a web application. So there's two ways. The patient journey or the user journey is they usually see an ad on social media or through Google, or if they're in a platform, um, they'll see the ad pop up on the screen or on their phone somewhere. So when they click it, they come through to our web-based platform, Open. And then each of the participants gives us a little bit of information about themselves. So they register to the platform. And at the moment, we've got about a thousand participants a week saying, yes, I'm interested to hook up to a clinical trial. Here's a bit of information about my health status. And so, of course, that's kept in a very secure way and also in compliance with all of the GDPR and, you know, legislation and regulation rules. And then if they're eligible for the study, they go through a digital triage, which we code in that triage. Sometimes it's generic, sometimes it's specific to a study. And then they get placed into a secure data room for the site to then open up that information and then contact the patient within that secure data room. So for the user experience, the individual, the patient can come in and if they land on a particular space, and this could be, say, rheumatoid arthritis, they'll go through that digital triage. But a participant can come to the platform and they can search any condition. So most of us have multiple conditions. So I suffer from migraines. I've got a bit of osteoarthritis. So I can come in and say, I'm looking for trials with maybe five different areas of therapeutic interest. I can come in there, save my searches, download the search, send the search by email to a friend or my GP and say, hey, what about this? I've seen this study that the Alfred's doing around migraine. What do you think about that? So the value of coming into open is the participant can see every registered clinical trial and study in the world that is available through any clinical trial register. So that includes the Australian New Zealand clinical trial register or clintrials.gov. And there's others. So they're not the only two. There's quite a few. When you say the world, that's a lot of information. Is there value for, say, a patient in Australia seeing every you know, trial in the world? Yeah. So consider a rare condition. So people that have rare conditions are highly motivated and very sophisticated searches of clinical trials. So yes, they want to see every clinical trial in the world. And there are many, many people that I think if they could see there's a clinical trial in Singapore and they're based in Sydney and they have the means and the motivation to travel to Sydney, they will. So part of this is about reducing bias as well. So what we do right now is many clinicians will make a decision based on what they think the patient is capable of or would consider, and then they may or may not offer a clinical trial opportunity. But also it's really hard for clinicians to know what clinical trials are going on. So we get just as many clinicians coming on to open 
and registering an interest in searching for a trial as we do users or carers or friends or family. What are the types of trials that quite commonly go through Opal? Is there a particular type or like you talked about numbers of patients that have gone through or some of the outcomes and things like that? Yeah, so Open's only been live for just over one year. It's still early days and the platform recently just got a major refresh about 10 days ago, which has been really exciting and a great, great piece of work to do. Um, Most of the studies that we've recruited have been in neurology. So my background's ophthalmology, so I love anything ophthalmology. We've done a bit of work in Alzheimer's and mental health. We've done a bit of work around stroke. Um, We're doing quite a few studies at the moment around long COVID. We've done some work around oncology and rare diseases, but also autoimmune diseases, metabolic diseases. It varies. Now, not every clinical trial is relevant to recruitment through social media. So particularly where you've got a really specific, highly targeted population that you're trying to recruit into a study, social media is maybe not always the way. And I'd say this particularly so in oncology. But when we're looking at things like metabolic disease, diabetes, any kind of chronic disease in which a participant or a carer is managing that condition at home over a long period of time, those people frequently get a little frustrated because current therapies on market aren't enough. It's not dealing with this. You know, I want to find something more. So we certainly see those conditions in which people are more likely to search through Google, they're the ones that we find it much uh, more efficient to recruit through social media. But of course, remembering that people are not enrolled through our platform, they come right up to the point where they're pre-qualified, then they get sent over to a site to actually do that conversation and then that proper consenting and then that enrolling process. Got it. So thinking about from a patient's point of view, someone who expresses interest in a trial or wants to go through that process, let's say they don't fit any criteria or for whatever reason it doesn't suit for a trial. I mean, is there comms that go back the other way? Because I've seen a lot of the times from a patient's point of view, especially when you're like now at the point of, you know, looking for trials anywhere and you'll, you'll take any little hook that you can get to try and get some progress you've not got anywhere to put yourself forward on one of these platforms and then just not get anything back and kind of just be, well bit of a disappointment. So there's, is there, there comms on the other side too? Yeah, that's something we've just started to do. So we're always very mindful in our business about, there's a couple of things. We've got this saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So yeah, we've got the ability to communicate with patients back, but we need to be really mindful. Is this actually creating value or are we just clogging up their inbox or calling them or SMSing them when actually they don't really consent to that and they don't really need that? So we're being very careful around the consent processes that we built into the platform. But yes, if participants want us to contact them, certainly if we can see a study or a trial that matches their exact eligibility we will send them a message. But, you know, that's likely to be pretty rare, actually. But we do want to keep communicating with our database because one of the key things in the business model is making sure the database stays active and responsive. Because when a sponsor comes in and says, hey, can you guys at Open search through your database for patients that match this criteria? We want the database to respond to that. So it's polite. Keep talking to people in that interim. Don't make it too much, make it just enough. We're just now starting to discover what that sweet spot is around communication. 
Treat them like humans, I guess. That's probably I know, a wild idea. I know. Isn't that funny? It's like treat them like humans. It's, you know, I actually participated in a clinical trial in a phase one study as a healthy volunteer. I was like the mystery shopper just to see what the experience was like. And I did this over 18 months and I was actually really quite surprised and appalled at the lack of communication and how much follow-up I needed to do as a participant that I thought would be automated from the site or the CRO. You touched on COVID quickly at one point in this discussion already about how trials being much more than just vaccines in terms of just public awareness. In terms of COVID and the impact on clinical trials generally, did that have a positive or a negative effect on the the clinical trial space? Well, I'm generally going to say positive and maybe that's, you know, confirmation bias. I'm saying that because I'm so obsessed with bias at the moment because I work in AI, but I actually think it's it's positive. So of course the negative impacts was trials slowed down because sites shut down and hospitals needed to focus on pandemic issues rather than clinical trials, but they've all started up again. And in Australia, we actually saw very little slowdown, which is really interesting. So the highest growth in the world around clinical trials is in the Asia-Pac region. Australia, New Zealand, Korea, China, we've all done really well in terms of maintaining momentum around clinical trials, whereas in Europe and the US, it certainly took a dive down. As I said before, because of COVID, I think literacy around clinical trials has improved, which means that the population is now primed to understand what a clinical trial is and also understand how necessary they are to be able to get new devices, diagnostics or medicines to market. So that's a really good thing. So that means that it actually shouldn't be difficult now to recruit participants into clinical trials and particularly through social media. But I think the other thing that COVID did was the real increase in COVID-related or long COVID-related or vaccine-related, respiratory-related clinical trials has just gone up. It's just increased dramatically. So I think that's a good thing. In, in a flip way, I think it's a good thing, but I'm sure people at work directly at the coalface of clinical trials don't think it's a good thing. And that is now we have an expectation that trial times can be compressed. It's like the block. You know, when you look at renovating your house, you think, True. oh, bathrooms, we could do that in a week. We yeah, could do, do it, it by Sunday and then do yeah. the big reveal. Yeah. I think <laughs> clinical trials suffered from the same sort of yeah. misunderstanding here that with COVID, oh, sure, you, you could get a new device to market. So it's funny, I listened to a lot of shareholders talking about this, but oh no, it's you know, they could get that to market in 18 months. Look how quickly they did COVID. So I think it has changed that, but it's also highlighted how ready the clinical trial sector is for disruption. And that is we're seeing decentralized trials, we're seeing adaptive trials, we're seeing virtual trials, we're seeing new technologies like telehealth starting to participate in the clinical trials ecosystem around technologies. This is all a very good thing. So for me and my business, these are great signals that the sector is ready for disruption. We're at this funny point, I think, where with increasing velocity of innovative technology and treatments and different ways to do things in healthcare, it's becoming less and less accepted. There's still a long way to go about like in terms of the timeframes have always existed in healthcare to go through a, a study for four or five years before you see any kind of outcome off the back of it. I think that there's these expectations now are shifting. It's still early days. You're right. It's a an interesting area to watch and something as, as such as a necessity like a trial and having that evidence in, in an industry that's so evidence-based that, that the trial is going to need to exist in one way or another. But yeah, how that changes is going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I think time frame is a really interesting part of this. And this is part of the value proposition of why the clinical trials industry has to change. Because if you look at the internal rate of return for particularly biopharma companies, 
the cost of clinical trials doubling in 10 years, but it's the time frame as well. So the more time you spend in the clinical trial system, the more you wear down the patents and the the longer it takes to get a product to market. So where artificial intelligence can really have an impact here is cutting down the timeframes, improving the efficiency, but also ultimately impacting on that internal rate of return. Absolutely. And then ultimately, if that means more innovations come to market quicker or or better treatments, new medications, then um, that's a win for everyone. And less money wasted. When you think of if only 10% of clinical trials actually reach their endpoints, it's 90% failure rate. That's billions of dollars every year that's wasted. And usually because of if it's not the actual device or a small molecule or whatever it is, it's about poor design and poor recruitment. And they can be changed. They can be fixed. We've explored the side of recruitment quite a bit and what Open does as a platform. And we've walked around, you know, trial design. Talk to me more about your platform trial key that really focuses on the other side of the the clinical trial, the design side. Yeah, TrialKey is the platform that actually keeps me up at night. I lie in bed awake and I think I should probably be thinking of other things. But to me, this is genuinely disruptive. I see open as innovation. That's incremental innovation. It's making something better than what it is. TrialKey to me really changes the game. It changes everything about the game. So what our goal is here is to use artificial intelligence and predictive analytics to design smarter clinical trials that are more likely to succeed in reaching their endpoints and also progressing from phase to phase. This is not an easy task to do. So the background is it was back in about 2018 and I was in Philadelphia. MIT, it was actually their business school. It was a bunch of economists published a paper and you can Google it and find this paper. It's a tremendous paper. And they used predictive analytics to try and predict if they put $100 on every listed biopharma company on the New York Stock Exchange, that had a product in a phase two, they were looking for catalyst events. Would they have made money or not made money? So they're looking at investment outcomes here or for them, their internal rate of return. So I saw this paper published and went, oh, wow, imagine if you could use that instead of for the benefit of fund managers. What if that was a software that an SME, biotech, medtech, digital health could use to augment and improve the design of their clinical trial or study? So that was the genesis of the idea. So this was an open source platform and I directly contacted MIT and so it sort of started from there. So in the first few months of COVID in 2020, we rebuilt the model and then we did a data trial. We did exactly the same data trial that these guys did. We did 2016, every company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. I blinded the clinical trial outcomes from our team. And we came up with the same result with the same accuracy as the MIT team did. So that took us about five months to build that. And then the next data trial that we did was all of the COVID vaccines. And this was in May 2020, vaccines and therapeutics. So we looked at, it was about 475 of them that were currently in clinical trials. And we predicted who would make it to market. And so our model was 74% accurate when we did the MIT model, same as MIT. And then when we did the COVID vaccines, we were 84% accurate. That to me was a real aha moment. And I thought, wow, this could be really game changing that if SMEs and medical research institutes and principal investigators in universities and hospitals had access to this kind of software, they would design better clinical trials and more likely to ensure a return on investment. 
So it's this concept of predicting the the success of or the outcome for these trials. Is that, and so it, so it then helps those that are designing it to actually see into the future a little bit potentially. Yeah, it's like modelling. So you put in your idea and say, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to have 60 patients. They're going to have that kind of eligibility criteria. We're picking these sites and these CROs to work with us. And this is the conduct of the trial. This is what it looks like. The algorithm then looks at that and it's a machine learning model. And so we're using some emerging AI around deep learning here too. So if any of the AI folks are listening to this podcast, we're moving into unsupervised deep learning. And this is where the model says, actually, instead of choosing those sites, these ones would be better. Instead of recruiting 60 patients, you're going to have a dropout rate of 22%. You'd be better to go for 72 patients. Um, so it's suggesting different ways in which the model, the design could be optimised. Now, you can't always change some of these things because you go, yeah, well, great. If I had $10 million in my bank account, I'd be able to do all those things. Thanks very much, but I can't do it. But we've done, we're now up to our fourth data trial and we're continuing to improve the specificity and the relevance and the accuracy of some of the variables. So at the moment, we've got about 150 variables in the model. So a variable is recruitment number, site, CRO selection, principal investigator selection, whether it's randomised, whether it's double blind, you know, all the rest of it. And it's everything from studies around digital apps right through to small molecules or biologics and devices, you know, diagnostics, imaging, all the rest of it. So there's a huge number of variables we've got to get through. We've got some amazing subject matter experts that are working with us. We're collaborating with RMIT, which are can just shout out to that team there. They're incredible under the guidance of Karen Vespua. But it's a really exciting space. But I think this won't take the place or the jobs of people that are designing clinical trials. It's a decision support software. And I think it will add a whole lot of value and potentially reduce the risk and definitely improve the return on investment. Are there particular group or those that are designing particular trials that you think will really benefit from that trial key platform? Yeah, I think randomised control studies and so looking at the more traditional models because we've got more data, outcomes data, to be able to train that model and train that data set. So the more traditional models, definitely. Something like vaccines, definitely. When we're looking into oncology and particularly regenerative medicine and we're using things like adaptive study designs, much, much harder. So this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing that I think it's going to eventuate that we'll see greater firepower in certain therapeutic areas with certain study designs and in certain spaces. And we're just discovering that now. So we've certainly seen vaccines are very easy to predict. You know, they've got a fairly systematic trial design. It doesn't really change that much. Same with respiratory. But then when you look at particularly the application of regenerative medicine in oncology, that's really hard to predict. That's really hard to model in these sorts of things. But I think this is where the sector has to go to start to reduce the risk, reduce the cost, compress the time, and to ensure that the funding that we've got available for clinical trials is actually well spent. Right on. I mean, that's transformational. In development now, is that right? Trial kit? Yeah. So we've got a model that's running. We're about to do another data trial around this. And we've been working with RMIT now for six months under a 12-month program, which I hope we can extend. And it's all about improving the accuracy and the specificity. So that there are, it's a bit like basic science. We're coming back to the basics 
and really trying to understand what are the drivers, what are the types of data that we could link together to really draw a conclusion here to be able to make a prediction about what works and what doesn't work in a trial design. So this is not an easy thing to do. And certainly we've seen, we've got a few competitors around the world, but not very many. So this is quite rare. It's going to be a work in progress. We're hoping to build the front end, the user experience in the next six months and get it to an MVP stage or what I call an MSP, minimum sellable product. And it can work in two ways. It could either work as a consulting model, which we would do reports and give a report back to somebody. It could work in a way in which if you work in uh, diabetes, type 1 diabetes, we could compare your competitors to your clinical trial design. And that may show that your clinical trial is in the top 75th percentile and it's got the most chance of success against these competitors. And I think that's something that an SME could take to an investor and say, hey, we've run it through this model. It says that we've got one of the best trial designs in the market in this therapeutic area. That's investable. And I think that would be really interesting to see how SMEs use this to either raise capital or to support investors or to even partner and to find the right commercial partner to take it forward. But I think it's this sort of information that I, I'm pretty confident that as we move forward, we will definitely see some therapeutic areas and some study designs more accurate than others. Absolutely. I'm keen to be watching this with, with interest. That's a, it's a great area to be focusing on. So then lastly, thinking about then Opal and what else is keeping you up at night? What's what's on the horizon? What's, what can we look forward to seeing from Opal in 2022 and beyond? Yeah, sorts of things that we've got coming forward is we've done a refresh of the open platform. So we've got lots of new customers that have now signed up. A lot of the customers that come to us through open are studies in recruitment distress. So that's probably about 80% of all of our customers. They've tried other ways to recruit, some of them digital, and they haven't worked. And so they come in to us. We're recruiting in languages other than English. So we do English, Spanish, Chinese, and Korean. So it means that we can access maybe underrepresented populations. We're also going to start working with a cultural advisor, looking at how do we present the ideas or even the language and the concepts around participating in clinical trials to First Nations people and also people from called or backgrounds in which there's cultural and linguistic diversity. The FDA recently put out a a call that said we now want to see diversity inclusion plans with clinical trial recruitment. That's something that we can definitely leverage here. So you'll certainly see more news flow around new customers and also working with new features and functionality that we've got a great plan to release with Open. With TrialKey, we're going full bore on this. I love this platform. This is the thing that really excites me as well. I think we'll certainly see some announcements here around data trials and incorporating some new technology and functionality. We've just started to use TrialKey to predict which clinical trials will recruit. So we're using TrialKey for our own purposes to decide which customers to work with with Open. So we're getting some pretty accurate outcome data around the likelihood to be able to recruit to plan and, of course, whether we can recruit ahead of plan as well. So that's that's a great differentiator. The team's expanding. We've just hired two amazing people up in Sydney. So we've just opened the Sydney office Both of them have deep experience in clinical trial data and platform systems. So that's really exciting. And seeing that growth in the team is wonderful. We've just started working and looking at the Asia-Pac region. I've been over to Korea 
lately, and we've been doing some partnering in Taiwan as well. The Asia pack is action packed when it comes to clinical trials. So I think we're in the right place at the right time. Wow. So much going on and that's really exciting. And I think that's cool that you're using trial key to then work out the potential customers for trial care. I think it's a nice. I know it's our sneaky point of difference. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, and people will say this, it doesn't matter what business you're in, choosing the right customers is a really important part of success. And for us, this is scalable. So our core goal is to scale. Everything has to be scalable. So we automate as much as we can. But this is a really critical one is because we, we want to be working with people that have good protocol design. But the more customers we see coming through open, the more we train our trial key model. So they kind of work together. There's a nice symbiosis there in one platform helping the other one, which in turn helps the other one back again. Oh, it's a great point to finish on and, and it's exciting time to speak to you, Michelle. Can't wait to check in in 12 months or so and see how things are progressing with Opal. So we'll put the details in the show notes of this episode for people to check out in their own time and connect if they're keen to learn more, get involved. Lots of different stakeholders can participate and benefit in this one. So I really appreciate you making the time in your busy schedule, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be part of it. Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player, and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.